You're set alive or dead. Nora! Nora. Nora. No. No. Move! Go! It's the Popcorn Digest with Gareth and Andy. Hello and welcome to another episode of Popcorn Digest. I'm your host Gareth Green and joining me as always is my full-time co-host and part-time ex-man, Andrew Raphael. Now look, when Patrick Stewart wants to pee, you bloody let him pee. <laughs> and for this week's episode, we're watching the last film in the X-Men series that anybody actually watched. That's right, <laughs> we're reviewing Logan. But is third time the charm for this mutant or is it time to hang up the claws? Find out after the trailer. Logan, what did you do? Charles, the world is not the same as it was. Mutants. They're gone now. I hurt myself today to see if I still feel I focus on the pain The only thing that's real Where is she? Beneath the She's like you of time Very much like you The feelings disappear She needs our help You are Someone come along Someone has come along I am still right here Huge Jacked Man returns as Logan Stabby Hands, a <laughs> mutant mercenary turned care worker for the elderly, living out the remainder of his days in Trump's America. <laughs> With an R rating finally delivered to the demand of franchise fans, they finally get to see Wolverine do what they've always wanted. That's right, this is the film where we finally get to see Wolverine lift Professor X onto a gas station toilet before he shits himself. <laughs> so... <laughs> Andy, Wolverine, Logan even. What is your experience with this film? Have you seen it before watching it for this episode? And generally, what is your experience with the Wolverine in general? I know that we've already done X-Men Origin Wolverines on this mm -hmm. podcast. Yeah. I will say that I'm the one that chose Logan to review on the podcast. Yeah. Not to spoil anything, but been one of my favorite films from the last few years as well. And I just felt it was a since we did the worst that the series had to offer. Yeah. It's only right that at some point we do what's arguably the best that the series has had to offer, for me personally. No doubt it's the best. There's no, there's not much competition, to be honest. I mean, you've, got, you've probably got two other films in the whole series. Yeah. You're probably looking at, like, X2 and Days of Future Past. Yeah, those are the two that I would put out there. Yeah, they're the high watermarks. Although, actually, I have to confess, I've not actually seen Days of Future Past yet. I've got it, but just never got around to um, watching it. I was going to watch it, and then Apocalypse came out, and then I couldn't be asked. Yeah. I mean, I've, I liked First Class. It had a lot of potential. That seemed to be the one that was actually better and improved. And then Apocalypse came out, and just I couldn't be bothered because I knew it was going nowhere. Yeah. But I think the main thing that saves Logan is the fact that it is basically just completely standalone and you can yeah. treat it as such there's a couple of little things that they try and tie to the main series but it's definitely been treated as a, a standalone movie but yeah my relationship to it is 
I've never seen it before in full. I've only ever seen the last 20 minutes, and that was only a couple of months ago. Yeah, I've always heard good things about it, but just never got around to seeing it. Uh, it was quite good to just watch it completely cold. Yeah. And yeah, my relationship with X-Men anyway is a little bit sporadic. There are a couple of films I haven't seen mm-hmm. or haven't seen in full. I don't think I've seen The Last Stand in full. And yeah, Days of Future Past and Dark Phoenix I haven't seen at all, but that doesn't <laughs> seem to have uh, mattered very much. <laughs> Yeah, I was one of the like six or seven people that actually went to see Dark Phoenix. It was another IMAX presentation that I saw. Yeah, it was the series going out with a whimper. Yeah. To speak about Dark Phoenix for a moment, it's not particularly awful. It actually is, for the large part, in the most mundane way possible, just perfectly average. Yeah, it's just there. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Despite its very troubled production history, it's just, eh. Yeah. I would have rather it have been an absolute train wreck, and that's almost yeah. a pun considering that the film does end with a giant train wreck. <laughs> but yeah, it was it was one of those films where it just kind of like rolled to a stop, and that was the series in general. Whereas I think yeah. if they had gone out on something like Logan, obviously, I don't think back then the people working on the films knew that the uh, X-Men series was a series that already had an expiration date considering the sale to Disney of 20th Century Fox. Yeah. But I feel like if they had known that, if they had had the hindsight, then they would have made the likes of Logan the bookend for this series. Yeah, I think that's the Simon Kinberg thing because I think he thinks he's much better than he is because at the same time, yeah, there was a possibility of the sale not going through, but there was always a strong possibility for quite a few years of the sale going through. Yeah. So you would have thought that they would have covered themselves mm-hmm. if they only had the opportunity to make one more film, that they would make you know, a film like Logan and do something similar in that respect yeah. to the main X-Men series and hired a good director and good screenwriter, of which Simon Kinberg isn't any of those things. No, certainly not proven in terms of directing. Well, I mean, that's his directorial debut. Yeah, exactly. So having someone who's not tried and tested in the field of directing and have that as your directorial debut, the finale of a 20-odd-year-old film franchise... Yeah, I'm not sure who greenlit that one, but they're probably not working for 20th Century <laughs> anymore. Yeah. So, <laughs> And there's almost a sense as well with Dark Phoenix, with them bringing in Hans Zimmer as the composer of that film, they're almost trying to push this feeling that it's more of a prestige film as well. Like, it's, yeah. it's going to be bigger, it's going to be better, there's more going on at play in this film. Yeah. I do feel like at some point they did intend to take a few risks, but they went by the wayside completely. And talking about Simon Kinberg as a director as well, his direction of the film, he's very unsure of himself. There's, he's trying to do too much to try and appease too many. And it feels like his vision, whatever vision that may have been, he let go of that very early on. Yeah, I mean, we'll never really know what happened. I imagine that's a film that's been pulled in all sorts of different directions during its production history. But Absolutely. Yeah, it's just there, and it may as well have been direct-to-DVD, <laughs> given how many people <laughs> didn't go and see it. Yeah. It's in stark contrast to this film, because this film was critically lauded a lot of people went to see it made a, a shit ton of money yeah it's a real like whiplash effect <laughs> in a way like it the is difference between the reception that this film had and its legacy versus dark phoenix and even apocalypse before it because apocalypse was 
fucking abysmal <laughs> in, a, in all the best kind of ways that apocalypse is one of the worst brian singer films i was going to say yeah. but actually i Next don't to think jack the giant slay <laughs> yeah yeah definitely <laughs> but i think it's also one of those films where brian singer actually uh, disappeared for like three weeks of filming as well so they just had to get on without him yeah i mean that says everything that you need to know about that film as well mm. i think the thing is with logan it never really suffered from the uh, aftermath of that film because right from early on it it established itself during its production as a standalone nothing to do with anything else to the x-men more of a finale for hugh jackman's portrayal of the character and you can just treat it as its own thing it's not going to be stylistically anyway similar to apocalypse whereas dark phoenix is intrinsically tied to that legacy that Apocalypse yeah, did. It, and I think it, it that, I think general audiences were just like, I can't be asked with it yeah. because it's dead anyway. <laughs> That's right. And, and I think as well, because Logan does give such a satisfying climax for the character of Wolverine, who for all intents and purposes has been the beating heart of this entire series, that once that came to a bookend, once that came to a close, there was this sense that nothing more was needed at least for a while. No. Let's let this lie for a while and then see what we can do. But I feel like that's part of the issue with superhero films in general. I mean, maybe this is what it was like to live in the 1950s with the Western. There are just so many of them at the moment that, as mentioned, we've said on this podcast before, I feel inundated with them. And for me personally, I think we could do with just some time off to let them go away for a short time. Let's build some wanting for this rather than just carrying on pummeling us with them you even get that with endgame because it's i don't mean to sound disrespectful to any fan of marvel but it is the most expensive tv show of all time the mcu oh definitely you get that with endgame because you've got endgame and that sort of finality and then it's join us next week for spider-man far from home and it's (laughs) you know it's like Yeah. In a way, the lockdown's been quite nice because I've not been bombarded with the superhero movies for quite some time because they've all been delayed. So uh, I think actually, in a way, it'll do it some good. Yeah, I I think so. People get annoyed when people say, oh, superhero fatigue, but I don't think it's just superheroes. It's just like like we were saying before with the Western, when you get a particular drama that's just relentless, you start to close yourself off from it. Exactly. That's why it's nice to have films like this, which are a little bit different. I mean, I'll go into it a little bit more, but I think it probably... Well, actually, no, I'll, I won't say any more yet. But um, yeah, it's nice to have films like this, and I wish we had more of them. Me too. I have certainly more to say as well about not just what this film is, but the type of film that it manages to be within this environment. I certainly have more to say about that. And also, I am going to touch upon the idea that these are the types of films that I would like to see studios make more of a risk with, and that Fox, during this time, I think it did take a lot of risks. We'll we'll certainly go into that. But first, I think it's time that we lay some context, Mm -hmm. (laughs) so to speak. There's a lot of history that does go with the X-Men series, but I didn't really want to get bogged down by that. So what I simply did was I did a very short write-up about the history of Hugh Jackman with this series as well. So we can familiarise ourselves with where he started in this series and essentially where he ends with this film. Mm Mm-hmm. Obviously, we have to begin in 2001 with the release of Brian Singer's X-Men, and that's Hugh Jackman's first appearance as Wolverine. But as mentioned on our X-Men Origins Wolverine episode, he was not originally intended to be the lead in that film. It was (laughs) Dougray Scott 
in fact. Who, you say? Exactly. <laughs> Some guy called Doug Ray. Doug Ray. <laughs> Doug Ray Scoot. Yeah, so it was actually Doug Ray Scott, but unfortunately for him, I would say. Yeah, very unfortunately. <laughs> maybe fortunately for the rest of us, because I, I mm. really like Doug Ray Scott. I think he's absolutely fine as an actor. Mm. But having said that, 20 years later, I can't imagine anybody else in this role other than Hugh Jackman. No. No. It's become iconic for him. If you look at Hugh Jackman, you are looking at Wolverine just as much as you are looking at him. Yeah. I mean, he's so iconic in that role. I would be very surprised that when they do integrate the X-Men into the MCU that he will appear initially. Yeah. Because I feel they're going to be they're probably very nervous about recasting that role. When you look at like the um earlier X-Men films, and, and the ones that sort of ran alongside this, some of those recastings in, for people in the younger roles worked. Some of them didn't. Yeah. The one that springs to mind to me is Sophie Turner as Jean Grey, which I think failed spectacularly. No, it doesn't work. Whereas, say, something like you know, Michael Fassbender as Magneto worked really well. So Like that central pair of James McAvoy and yeah. Michael Fassbender is where that film really works. But yeah, yeah, Sophie Turner, I remember she did stick out like a sore thumb. Yeah. And I quite like Sophie Turner. She's absolutely great in Game of Thrones. She's given more to do as that series goes on and then less to do at the end as everybody else is. But yeah. that just felt like a real miscast moment. Miscast and underwritten. Exactly, yeah. Mm. Yeah, so Hugh Jackman, he was a replacement for Dugray Scott and Dugray Scott had to drop out of X-Men because there were reshoots required for that famous film that everybody remembers, Mission Impossible 2. <laughs> <laughs> the worst Mission Impossible the, film. The worst Mission Impossible. Can By you a country imagine? mile. Yeah. That is very much a story of Pierce Brosnan losing out to Bond oh, because yeah. he still had to record the TV series. Oh, which which show was it now? Remington like? Steel. Remington Steel. They only did four more episodes as well. <laughs> <laughs> only it doesn't really have that much of a happy ending for Dougray Scott no. in terms of... Maybe they will give Wolverine to him now. Maybe it's like 20 years later. Now is your time, Mr. Scott. I can just imagine him at the studio gates, like clawing at the gate. <laughs> going, I'm ready. I'm ready. <laughs> yeah, he's got, his, he's got his hair twisted up into the points and everything. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so after three outings as Wolverine to varying degrees of success, I would say. Well, I would say that that's when you look at the individual qualities of those films. Hugh Jackman was awarded for his dedication to the character with an origin film of his own. <laughs> But this dream job quickly turned into a nightmare. And we have recorded an entire episode about that film. So do feel free to go back into our archives and, Mm -hmm. you know, have a good Mm. listen. I I actually quite enjoyed that episode. It's a very good one, I think, I I would say. I listen to it regularly. (laughs) Oh, At least once a decade. So that's where our 55,000 listens have come from then. (laughs) It's all me. But uh, yeah, that that was supposed to be a big series and it ended up being a series of one. Yes, it didn't just kill his series, but it killed Magneto's series as well. It killed the series of so many other characters. In many ways, actually, by doing the origin films, the standalone films for the individual characters, Fox were kind of ahead of the game in terms of Mm -hmm. when you look at what Marvel are doing now with their characters, uh, individual stories, but connected by legacy episodes, you would call them, where all of the Mm -hmm. characters come together. That's almost what... they tried to do beginning with x-men origins wolverine but they fucked it up so much that they had to go straight back to point they had to go revert back to what they knew yeah it's like all the ideas that they had basically just got compacted and wrapped up into first class and i will say as well that first class is probably at its best when 
exploring the Magneto individual storyline. That whole section of him speaking to the uh, Nazis in the Austrian bar is the best scene in that film, hands down. Mm. In fact, when you look at the Magneto scenes in Apocalypse as well, the best section of that film, I lament what we lost by losing that Magneto film, that grittier Nazi hunter Magneto. I still Mm. lament that we lost that film. And with Michael Fassbender as well, you had a great actor for that role. Yeah. So after X-Men Origins Wolverine comes out, it's a huge failure, thanks in no small part to a weak script, a lack of vision and studio interference. We've mentioned Tom Rothman Mm -hmm. on this podcast before. And you'll notice something as well in regards to Tom Rothman's involvement, that Wolverine series actually finds its feet the moment that Tom Rothman leaves Fox in general as well. So, following X-Men Origins Wolverine, it still makes enough money that they want to pursue an individual, a solo Wolverine film. Because people still love that character, and people still love Hugh Jackman. So, The Wolverine followed the X-Men Origins, and it's here when the series first brought in James Mangold to the director's chair. Mm -hmm. And what would you say that your opinion is of The Wolverine? Because I know that you've seen it, because we went to the cinema together. Yeah, we did, yeah. It's a funny one with Wolverine. I... Liked bits of it, but I found the body of it to be immensely boring. And the ending is may as well be from another film. Yeah. It feels like it's been like a reshot ending. And they say that the villain characters don't quite mesh well with the tone of the rest of the film. But the rest of the film is is interesting, but just a little bit dull. The chemistry between some of the actors isn't there. Mm-hmm. I remember the, the chemistry between Wolverine and the girl that he's rescuing is non-existent just not really there yeah and it it kind of just loses me a little bit so i mean it's a step in the right direction from x-men origins of which pretty much any film would be but um it wasn't quite there for me i would absolutely agree with you you've taken the phrase i was going to use and that i think it was a step in the right direction i actually think looking at x-men origins wolverine it's probably a leap and a jump in the right direction oh yeah, yeah i feel like it does have a director who has a strong sense of visuals and It has its moments where it really shines, but I think the moment that it shines brightest is, in fact, the opening scene in which the bomb goes off and Wolverine hides in the well. Yeah, yeah. That's probably the most interesting part of the film for me. And I agree with you that as that film goes on as well, the ending feels like it's been... I would say that that is the ending that fits more in line with X-Men Origins Wolverine Mm. than it does with that film. Yeah. But it feels like somebody is working behind the scenes who has a vision, but they're still being impeded by the requirements to hit like studio-mandated comic book movie beats. Like You still have to work within this framework. Mm -hmm. That's what I feel about The Wolverine, that for all it does right, it also does plenty wrong. I feel with The Wolverine movies... It's like they've been rewriting the same film and getting it a little bit better every time. Because in a way, I feel that like Logan is a um, a slight rewrite of the Wolverine. Yeah, structurally, it's got some similarities to it. And this is where I'm going to start to show you what my opinion of the film is. But I feel like everything's been ramped up quite considerably in terms of quality and and meaning and depth and everything. But I feel like certain elements in, say, the levels of things are actually remained the same from the previous film, but they're just better. Yeah. I don't want to come down hard on the film because I do actually genuinely like the film, but I feel like there's there's some areas with this film where I still feel there was a little bit of studio going on. Mm-hmm. I feel like this film's been slightly overhyped for me. That's always the issue, isn't it, with these yeah. type of films, especially those in the uh, 90% yeah. kind of level on Rotten Tomatoes, is that you always run the risk of overhyping these type of films. But I have a feeling 
feeling I know what you're speaking about, but I also have an opinion of it that kind of ties into the rest of the film. But just to get an idea, would it perhaps be the subplot involving Richard E. Grant and his inclusion in the film? I would say all of the villains. All of the villains. All of the whole villains plot yeah. and their characterizations. I feel that this film is a solid four out of five, yeah. but it's not a five out of five for certain things, which I think were maybe slightly neglected and could have been fleshed out more, yeah. especially in comparison to the other elements of the film, which I think were superb. It kind of only highlights that those elements are still a little bit too much in that old world. Yeah. I think the villains are a little bit paper thin in comparison to the main characters. I feel the lacking depth there. Yes, I mean, I don't disagree with you. I think there is meaning to that, which we'll, we'll delve into that very shortly. But I think mm. there is meaning to that. I think it's not something that's happened by accident. But I do agree with you that in terms of looking at the villains, with the exception of, I would say, X-23, which has some greater depth in terms of thematics. The villains like Richard E. Grant and his whole role in the film and Boyd Holbrook, they are holdovers from the type of film that would have been made previously. Yeah. Oh, do you mean X-23 or X-24? Oh, sorry, X-24. is. Oh, he's the one I, he's the thing I like the least. I love his inclusion in the film. No, I think he's straight out of X-Men Origins. Oh, no, I... I, I kind of sighed when that was there because I'm thinking, oh, they've done that. I genuinely think it's one of the least original things in the whole film. Oh, really? I actually thought I'd seen it in another in another film because I'm pretty sure they've done something similar to this in the past. And I just found it very underwhelming that they'd done that with a character. It didn't seem to fit in with the world that they created for this film. I think even the, the look of the thing bothered me because they basically made him look like Sabretooth from Origins. I found that part of it quite disappointing to be honest. Okay. So I guess that's something that we really get to get yeah. our teeth and claws into <laughs> later in the episode because I have a completely different reaction yeah. to that character in particular. Yeah. What I will do, just to give the very final bit of context as well, is The Wolverine came out and it was a much better success story for The Wolverine as a character. It made more money and hit with the critics better. It still wasn't an amazing film, and nobody regarded it as such, but in terms of popcorn entertainment, everybody was fine with it. And then X-Men Days of Future Past soon followed, boasting a strong uh, central performance for Jackman once more, although I would say that in that film he is somewhat sidelined around the midpoint and then comes mm -hmm. back into it at the end. But the demand was still there for Jackman to do a Wolverine that did greater justice to the character, and people wanted an R-rated outing for the character mm. at that and the big difference is at this point, I think it is, or just before Days of Future Past, is the point in which Tom Rothman leaves 20th Century Fox. And that's when this series starts to play about with certain ideas that it always shunned. And we have to thank as well, in no small part, Deadpool yeah. for Logan coming out. Because that's the difference here, is that between Days of Future Past coming out and this coming out is... Deadpool was released. It had an R rating and a modest budget of $58 million. And it went on to make $800 million worldwide. And that just gave Fox the confidence to go the extra mile with their next Wolverine film. But also, not just Wolverine, I think it gave them the confidence to do other things and greenlight other films as well. Shortly thereafter, work began on Logan with the same director and one of the same writers behind the production. It was promised as an R-rating outing with imagery that lent into a famous X-Men comic called Old Man Logan. But I would say that this turned out to be not quite what fans were demanding and I would say it's all the more better for it. People were always asking for the Berserker Logan, the unfettered rage Logan. 
And this gives you something, I would say, far more melancholic. It's a lot more interested in exploring the sadness of this character as well. Mm. So it's kind of like, we'll give you some of what you want, but we're also going to give you plenty of what you don't even know you want, which is what yeah. I think most best franchise films and fan films should do. They should be striving to give you what you don't know you want. Although I still feel it's a little bit hampered by those demands. I'm kind of hoping it's a transitional film because I do feel there's areas where they could have gone further in Jets and other things that still feel very part of that kind of fan service thing. This film sort of kept me up at last night because in one time I liked it, another place it left me a bit cold. Yeah. Because the things that it explored when it was being comfortable with itself, I really liked. But then when I feel like it has those kind of more comic booky villains and um, I wouldn't say all of the violence, but some of the violence in it, I was just like, it suffers a little bit from, um, I actually start, I wrote it in my notes as um, adultization. So this is the thing where a property goes from being a more family-friendly format to a uh, an adult format, and in doing so, has to put its foot on the ground saying, this is an adult film, but does it in a teenage way? Only slightly. I mean, there's some much worse things out there that are that are like that. I mean, the, the first series of Torchwood springs to mind, where literally there's F-bombs everywhere, and the second episode of that is where there's a, an orgasm alien, and it's just like, oh, no. Yeah, I, I remember that episode, actually. It has sex with people, and then at the point of orgasm, it absorbs them. Yeah, it's like Hollyoaks after hours. <laughs> Baywatch after dark. Yeah, I mean, this is, I mean, there's the completely different worlds, but I did feel it in places, it did suffer a little bit from that adultization. Yeah. I kind of felt that the, the tone of the thing suffered a little bit for it. But uh, yeah, I do hope it's a, a transitional film, and they'll make more films like this and continue to perfect it, because I feel that this is a... I don't want to come down as really negative because I generally, I like the film, but I feel like this is a great start. They could go further with this. Yeah. I don't want this to be the high watermark for that kind of subgenre of, of film. I kind of feel like this is a stepping stone to maybe even more films like this that are even better. In terms of the adultization, I don't think I felt that particularly. I would say with adultization is kind of leans into the fact that, wow, aren't these characters cool? look at how cool we're being we're adults mm. whereas i think logan the thing that i love and the thing that i respond to most about it is when we look at the film that preceded it in terms of the individual films we have the wolverine and that film was practically marketed off the back of look how strong we can make hugh jackman look as the wolverine and look how muscly he is he's one percent body fat i remember the first promotional image that they released was him with his top off really showing off his muscles and in stark contrast when we look at this straight from the off the image of wolverine that we get is one of a broken and poisoned man yellowed by seems to be liver failure who is unable to function the same way as we have seen previously. And the whole mission statement of the film is, look how vulnerable this character is now. Mm -hmm. And I think that is where the film is the biggest step up. It's just in yeah, terms yeah. of the way that it muses and ruminates on this character. It's not about the visuals. It's not about how cool he is. It's about how sad it is to be him and about how broken he is. And in a world that appears to be dying, 
he's dying along with it as well. He's not this infallible, untouchable, and impenetrable, you might say as well. Impervious, that's the word I'm looking for, not impenetrable. Mm. Um, impervious individual that he's always been built by in the past. We feel like if he gets shot, he could die. Mm-hmm. Even the way that he utters the word fuck, it's not like, oh, cool. You know, this is the cool Wolverine that we've always wanted to see. Look at him swearing again and stuff. It's like, he does it so exasperated. It's like, oh, fuck. Mm. And it, you get a feeling like he just, straight from the off, he just wants to die. Yeah. I don't know. It's just like, I can't imagine, after seeing every single X-Men film previously, I could never have imagined that in terms of pursuing a send-off for these characters, they would do it in this way. What I would expect most from this type of film is, just using Professor X as an example, I would expect that, his death, and he has died in this series before, (laughs) his death would be explored as being this climax of this amazing set piece where he sacrifices himself or explodes or something mystical and magical. Whereas in this film, he dies a broken man crying and lamenting about something in his past that haunts him. And in his eyes, he's killed by Wolverine. And it's this very quiet scene in which nothing else really matters. Yeah. There's no big blue laser in the background or anything like that. No. It's just an old man in a bed quietly being stabbed to death. I really like that part of the film, actually. And in fact, I would say, even though I'm a little bit negative on X-24 as a character on the whole, that's probably the best use of him in that scene. No, I really like that bit. I mean, I do agree that there are parts of this film that feel, let's say, old world in terms of the X-Men series, but it is essentially still part of that series in a way, and I do feel like there are reasons for that, but the ways in which it does dispatch with the characters, even Logan himself at the end, they're not the ways that people ever expected to see these characters go out. No. It's all the better for it as well. But part of it does make me feel a little bit sad that they've been shackled in that way and that they can't go... I don't know, even if their acquisition by Disney may, may make it harder, actually, than, than with Fox, because Fox, towards the end of its independent life, was starting to become a little bit more daring. Exactly. But yeah. um, I just hope that this isn't like the only example of this kind of thing, because, like I was saying, I kind of hope it was more of a transitional thing and it would, and it would get even better, because I think it was a strong start for this kind of superhero film. Yeah. I love a good, breezy superhero film. But there's a, you know, there's a time and a place for that. And I don't think they all have to be like that. Yeah. And there's definitely a place and has been proved that there's a place for a film like this. And I kind of just hope that they, somebody, a studio decides to do more films like this and go and is able to go even further. Yeah. And not be shackled by the conventions of the genre and the format. Because although I think they were able to do that with these central characters, these main characters in many ways, I generally think that what Hugh Jackman and Patrick Stewart were doing in this film was pretty amazing. Yeah. And I imagine this is probably the most fun they've had making a film based off this material as well. I I, I just look at Patrick Stewart's performance and I'm just thinking he's having a lot of fun doing this. He is. And the same with Hugh Jackman, even though he's being pained, I imagine this is very creatively fulfilling to be on set doing this kind of stuff. A lot more so than, you know, doing X-Men Origins of bollocks, you know. <laughs> yeah. So, well, Hugh Jackman in general anyway has always danced around this idea of a portrayal of that character mm. and it's always been the dressing of that character, never the main body of that character. It's always been the sense that he can't die and wants to 
and doesn't want to be a gun, essentially, <laughs> to, to lean onto the Iron Giant. I actually think... <laughs> I was going to say, I am not a gun. I think, actually, this film has a lot in common with its main message <laughs> as the Iron Giant of not being the gun. All of the other films, or previous films in the series, that's been the dressing of that character. That's never been the main body, and this film makes it front and centre. This this sadness that's involved with that and is wanting to not be this thing. Mm. But um, going back to the R rating as well, I think the main thing that it does afford this film as well is something the series has never had, and that's real consequences of violence. Yeah. Let's take the opening scene, for example, of Logan, in which he does go up against the people that are trying to jack his car. In terms of stabbing people, it probably has just about as much violence as the scene in X-Men 2, Mm. when Wolverine stabs the soldiers that are storming Professor X's mansion. But that scene has no consequence whatsoever. There's no Mm. feeling to anything he does. Although he has knives for hands, you never feel like he's actually killing people or hurting people. He's just simply stopping people. Whereas I think this film, straight from the off, makes it its mission statement to say that there are consequences to these violent acts. And not just the physical consequences, like people are going to lose their arms, they're going to lose their legs, and it's not nice to look at. Mm. But also, in terms of the thematics of the story, it's the consequences that follow him for this life of killing people. And the violence that he brings with him to other people as well. Like we mentioned, the farmhouse family, the Munsons. Where he goes, the violence follows because that's been his life this whole time. Literally, in terms of we actually have a physical manifestation of that in this film. Mm. He brings it with him and releases it on the world around him. I think that's why we portray this world as well as being one that is dying. One that is kind of on the fringes of something happening, like something big happening. It's There's a distinct lack of humanity, I would say, in the world that it portrays. And it's also been somewhat prescient as well (laughs) with the whole border drama as well and the capturing and caging of kids. Yeah. That has been something that has unfortunately come into play as well. But yeah, I think the R rating has afforded them real consequences and to bring consequences to others. Because the Munsons are essentially a family in any other superhero comic book film. They are essentially the collateral damage. To use Man of Steel, for example, they are the bystanders in a building that gets pummeled by General Zod and never seen again. And this film affords you the time to sit with them and get to know them and see them as people before brutally dispatching of them. I just wish the other side of it had been as compelling as all that, because I feel like that side is so compelling that it shines a light on the other stuff and goes, this is a bit malformed. Yeah. And also, I think in terms of the R rating... It afforded them so many opportunities, but I think there was a couple of places where I felt like a little bit more restraint would have been more appropriate and would have made the film stronger and made some moments hit harder than they do. One of my favourite moments of the film is the first time you kind of get to know what Laura's powers are like. And it's done without actually seeing any of it. Yes, yeah. You know, when she comes out of the sort of warehouse smelting factory with the guy's head and you just hear the screams beforehand. (laughs) And I found that quite effective. Whereas, I mean, it's good to see her in action, but I felt like there was quite a lot of that to the point where it maybe wasn't quite as effective as that moment where you didn't see anything. I think this is where it kind of sometimes toes that line of being given that freedom and then actually almost like pushing it to the point where it may actually 
lessen its impact. I mean, I'm only saying that in a few moments because I did like a lot of this. I just think there were a couple of little moments that here and there where I just thought they didn't need to do that. It could have implied something rather than actually seen it. What did you think of Daphne Keane as... It's Laura, but it's Laura, got like yeah. a technical name. Like it's X-23. X-23, that's it, yeah. yeah. Did get the two mixed up. Oh, no, I think she's great. No, I really liked it. I mean, actually, I've seen her in... Um, His Dark Materials, she's been in recently, hasn't she? She carries that series. Yeah. <laughs> and which is quite extraordinary considering how young she is. And playing it completely differently to how she does here, because obviously in the, His Dark Material, she's playing it very English schoolgirl. Yeah. And obviously here, she's playing on the other side of her because she's like this bilingual, dual nationality figure. So it gives mm-hmm. her a lot of flexibility. But yeah, doing all that at such a young age and showing that kind of range is uh, very impressive and seems to have been that way for both Hugh Jackman and uh, Patrick Stewart on set. Yeah. They sung her praises quite highly. They did. I think Patrick Stewart said his favourite scene in the film was one in which he was acting opposite her, the one where he's laying the bed at the uh, Las Vegas hotel and they're speaking mm. about Shane. And in the documentary for the film, the making of documentary, he <laughs> laments the fact that when they did that scene, I think they did it on the first or second take that they got it. And he said, that's the last time I'm going to be able to do that. And he said to her, you really need to do theatre. If you get a scene that you like, you can do it every night for six months. <laughs> I mean, go, I think going into Patrick Stewart as well, like, Ooh. I feel like... Oh, going... I, was, go I knew you were going to say that as soon as I said it. Make it so. Yeah, I, I feel like in the last couple of years, Patrick Stewart's been doing roles which have reflected his personality more. You know, he's always been known as Patrick Stewart, you know, make it so prim and proper. Yeah. Where actually when you meet him and you know what he's like, he's not like that at all. No. He's quite an anarchic figure. Yes. I think the the first time he really got to see that was his role in extras. (laughs) And um, And it's too late. I've already seen everything. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But I feel in in the last couple of years, he's been able to fully embrace that aspect of his personality. And I think this is a a great send-off for that character by basically playing it completely differently to how he played it before. Oh, definitely. I've watched Picard recently, and I say I've watched Picard, I only managed to get around four or five episodes into it, and I simply gave up. It wasn't for me, really. Mm. It's not the Star Trek I like. I just simply went back to the next generation, started Mm. watching that again. But in this film, I do feel, as you've mentioned, it does reflect Patrick Stewart a bit more, and I can see why he was so attracted to the role as well, because Professor X, Xavier, has always been a very steadfast and fixed individual in terms of his character and his beliefs and his portrayal that to actually get the chance to portray him as being a negative influence on the plot in many ways a burden so to speak and yeah also to be really quite crotchety and angry about his fate at times at times i would say it's an even upsetting portrayal like when Mm. we first see him and he's wheeling about in his little bastardized cerebro thing the water tank yeah and he seems to be wheeling about just repeating adverts that he's currently hearing from miles and miles away Mm. and then he's crying as Logan picks him up and he's angry at him. I was like, this is really upsetting for this character that this mm. is where he ends up. Again, that's what I really like about this film. I think it's just that it affords these characters things to do that would never really be allowed in any other superhero film that I can think of. I was speaking to my wife about it. I think I mentioned it to you in a text as well, that watching these characters act this way in this film is akin to having a scene in a Sean Connery James Bond film where he can't get it up. Yeah, <laughs> that's what it's akin yeah. to it's yeah. like just give me one moment pussy <laughs> I can make this work pussy just give me a moment come on man I think also as well I, I liked the idea of 
things decaying yeah. and getting worse and that the fact that when people decay, these powers can actually be a very negative thing. And obviously going back to the actual demonstration of that when he has these seizures in like the one in the casino. And then obviously when you learn about the one that happened the year before that killed all the, you know, killed like some of the other X-Men and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah, that was pretty heartbreaking to see things like that. And uh, I would say, you know, that they're the, the some of the high points of the film. Yeah. And I really like that final Patrick Stewart speech and, and the way that was wrapped up as always pretty shocking it's genuinely shocking it shocks me because i was expecting him to go out and not not in a blaze of glory but i was expecting him to get his moment where this is the redeeming moment for that character but i really should have <laughs> clued into the fact that this wasn't that type of film mm, yeah and talking about things that have decayed as well i do feel like this is a vision of the future as well that feels it's very real it's very grounded there's enough in it that shows us that technology has progressed as well but there's a distinct lack of humanity here. And mm-hmm. the world around is one that is very angry and lacking humility. I mean, even when we see the type of people that Logan spends his days ferrying around, like frat boys that are laughing in the face of immigrants that are just simply trying to survive and that type of thing. Yeah, yeah. It reminded me in a way of the rover. The rover feels like it's a few steps just slightly beyond this one where it's an apocalypse where no great thing has happened, where no big bomb has gone off, but instead humanity has just been allowed to snowball out of control a little bit and into darkness. Mm-hmm. That's what it feels like that this world that it presents is on its way to. And this whole film does seem to be about decay, even straight down to, as I mentioned, the Cerebro thing. I know it's just a water tank, but it's meant to look like Cerebro with its holes on it. Mm. It's like a, a reflection of his mind currently. It's falling to pieces. And I like the idea that after a series in which mutants have been lauded for their powers, in many ways it's been this great metaphor for coming out. They even have a scene in X2 of one of the mutants approaching their parents and saying, I'm a mutant. It's like, well, can you just try not to be a mutant? And it's like this whole allegory for the queer experience. But I like that in this film that they take what's been regarded as being special in previous films and they make it what's killing these people. Like every mutant that we see, their powers are actively a negative for them. Wolverine no longer really has the ability to heal and he's being essentially poisoned by the adamantium within his body, he believes anyway. Yeah, yeah. Professor X is being destroyed by his brain. The greatest power that he's ever had is this magnificent brain and now it's destroying him and has the potential Mm -hmm. to, to destroy many around him and the people that he loves. And Caliban has been used to hunt other mutants with his ability to be able to locate them. And essentially that leads to him being captured and killing himself. Yeah, yeah. These things that people have been in the past, it's been almost romanticized about. In this film, they put it in a position to say that the world is actually killing them. They're dying with everything else. I like that. Yeah, I don't disagree with any of that. (laughs) And I would say, again, that's easily the strongest element of the film. And it's great that that is the central element of the film. You know, it takes up two thirds to three quarters of the running time. Mm -hmm. I just wish that last quarter had risen up to that level because I just don't think it does. I feel like they concentrated so much on those elements of the film, which and rightly so, but I generally think they forgot about the other things. Yeah. Because the other things, not that they feel like they're coming out of a different film, but I just feel they feel very two-dimensional in comparison. And maybe not as big of a threat as they probably could have been because 
I think they come across like that at the beginning, but as time goes on, it loses its menace somewhat. Mm. But yeah, I think that's where it kind of just slightly falls down for me. I mean, it's not a huge like flaw, but I just I think that's where I was like, oh, I'm just slightly disappointed. I get where you're coming from. I mean, it's probably a good point to actually start talking about that last mm. act. So we've spoke about quite a lot about the establishing and yeah. the world that presents, the characters it presents and that type of thing. I mean, I will say that the thing that feels like it's most coming from the previous films to me are the villains. But one thing that I like that it does well with, particularly the Richard E. Grant character, is that it sets him up as there being this type of grand arc surrounding him, that there's going to be this big subplot that ties into the world around them, that, oh, he's the guy that's created this, I don't know, serum or something. It's essentially yeah, yeah. what X-Men 3 was about, The Last Stand. Yeah. Was he's created something that's inadvertently had this effect on all mutants where it's now killing them or there are no more mutants anymore because that's something that he's wanted to control. And that does feel like something that can be pulled straight out of any other X-Men film. But when it actually comes to the moment in which it's really going down that path where he walks out and like the building up to the big finale where you feel like, oh no, it is actually going a bit the Wolverine now and it's ending where you're expecting Richard E. Grant to jump into a big robot mech thing at any any point so he can uh, give his exposition. and Even the moment when he starts monologuing. The moment he starts monologuing, Wolverine just shoots him in the head and that's it. And it's like the statement of, that's not this fucking film. Mm. You know, it's like, I don't care about this. This isn't the world-changing film. What I do isn't going to change this world. I don't care. I just want to save one person before I die. And that's what the film is about. And I like that in this moment, the Richard E. Grant character is dispatched with, with such almost like flippancy and disdain from a filmmaking point of view that I yeah. can't help but feel in a film that has subverted expectations all the way through, taking characters and done something completely different with them. I can't help but see that as intentional. Like they're taking mm-hmm. this stock character from another film and not really giving him the time of day to really get his point across or to have his big moment. He exists Mm -hmm. there to really get the plot going. But when the film is threatened with becoming that type of film, they just simply shoot him in the head. And it felt like a statement moment for me. I remember I was quite shocked when that happened. And it has the effect of it does make him feel diminished in many ways. But I think that's also very intentional because at that point, this late in the film, they don't want to take attention away from the things that are going on with Logan and X-23, Laura, at that point as well. And that's what I liked about that. But I do agree that the villains are the most X-Men prior type of characters in the film. Mm -hmm. And I also agree, I quite like Boyd Holbrook in the film. He's fine. But I yeah. quite agree that that character is rather two-dimensional as well. Boyd Holbrook, uh, I think, is the the love child of uh, Charlie Hunnam and Tom Felton. <laughs> yeah, and had the, the great misfortune of starring in The Predator after this. Yeah, that's really bad. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he's not really given much to do in that film as well. I'd, I'd no. say he's fine in this film. He's, he's really good in Narcos as well. Mm. Yeah, I'd, I'd say that role in particular is rather underwritten anyway. I like his robot hand. I think that's pretty well done, actually. Yeah. But yeah, the character as a whole is a little bit bland. Yeah. Especially when he's playing off all these other characters. It just emphasizes it more. Yeah, I completely understand and get what they were doing with that Richard E. Grant character. And I think, yeah, they even hired Richard E. Grant on purpose to do that kind of character because, you know, Richard E. Grant just exudes 
campy villainousness. I mean, I, I saw Richard E. Grant in the street in Richmond once carrying some M&S bags. <laughs> I was just thinking, oh, what it would have been nice to have gone, what's in your M&S bags, Richard E. Grant? And it was like, I'm having sausages for tea and you can't stop me. <laughs> you know. I've gone to M&S by mistake. <laughs> Yeah, because <laughs> he's just that kind of a figure. So yeah, I get why they, they would have hired him for that kind of shtick that he has than he's yeah. known for. They've essentially hired him for Star Wars Rise of the Skywalker for that role, unironically. Yeah, I think I just wish they would have done something more in the middle because I kind of felt that that thread was set up really well in the two phone clips. The, the um what is what's her name the nurse oh, i forgot what her name is she's basically exposition lady <laughs> yes she is because yeah. i liked how the lack of battery life in the phone broke up the exposition yeah in an ironic way even though it's exposition it was handled quite well and it was quite heartbreaking and i liked as well they actually it looked like it was generally shot on a on a phone yeah you know how some films where they show phone footage and it's obviously been shot on a really expensive camera and, <laughs> and degraded like an Ari alexa yeah this actually genuinely looked like footage that would have been shot so that was quite refreshing one of my pet peeves in movies as well is when they show you footage from a previous scene that's supposed to be cctv footage or phone footage and it's just what they what they shot in the previous scene it's just what that really bothers me oh there's a horrible shot in the world is not enough with cctv footage where it's a uh, a crane shot of the casino in zukovsky's casino in that film (laughs) yeah it's a crane shot going down and then it cuts to cct footage of the same shot (laughs) yeah exactly it's horrible (laughs) it's genuinely horrible and it's even more horrible because it's not even consistent because when they go back to it it's normal CCTV footage there we go and it's like "Mm." yeah I don't like that I don't like that whatsoever whereas this is really good in fact I was one thing I I did write down which I kind of knew why they would have done it but I wish this film would have been shot on film yeah I mean I think that about a lot of films I I agree I think it would have particularly lent itself as well especially when they're making so many comparisons to a film like Shane yeah, and you've got this kind of gritty desert environment, and everything feels like grainy and dirty. I kind of felt like they should have shot it with like dirty film. That's it. There's only a realness that real film stock brings, like that real grain. It grounds a film for me. And digital films, they can add the amount of digital grain that they want, but it never feels real. It always seems digital. Yeah, and I think that this is what this film lacks as well: is that image that has that grain texture, that integrity that lends itself to the very films that it's leaning on You're the likes of Shane and Unforgiven and for a western it is just lacking that something that could really be given to it by having it shot on film mm. yeah I, I absolutely agree with you and I think I think that's an issue as well these days is just because it's essentially seen as being harder to shoot on film as well now because yeah. you are limited in the amount of takes you can do and that type of thing as well because you need the film whereas with digital you can really shoot to your heart's content until you get what you want now, I can see why they shoot on digital because it's easier, but it still looks, for me personally, it still looks better on film. It's not even in the look. I think it's even in the in the motion, of how it captures the motion of yeah, things. Yeah. The film felt a little bit rough around the edges in places where I could feel that digitalness coming through. Yeah. It was only at certain moments, but I was like, oh, that's a, yeah. didn't feel right. It felt a bit TV. 
Mm. They're definitely getting better with those cameras. And yeah. in the right hands, they've worked. You know, I love, uh, you know, Skyfall. That's one of the best examples of a, a digitally mm-hmm. shot film. And shot in 2K as well. It's still very much in its infancy yeah. as a format. So it's going to get better, but it's mm-hmm. there's still a couple of little gripes I have with it. But I think this film in particular would have benefited from a more old school treatment. It does feel very much old school and stripped back as well in terms of yeah. this type of film anyway, that it would have only benefited from being shot on film. And I yeah. will say that although it is digital, again, I, I want to stress that I like the look of the film. I like the aesthetics. I yeah. like the cinematography. Yeah. And I will say that there are parts of the CGI that are amazing because they are seamless. And the entire digital doubles, for example, when Wolverine is driving the limo throughout that chase, there are scenes in which you can see Hugh Jackman clear as day, but it's actually a digital double over the stunt driver. And I did not notice until um, I think it was one of those good and bad CGI videos on YouTube Mm. that I watched that pointed out. I was quite astonished. Yeah. But yes, in terms of the integrity of the image, the texture of the image. And I agree. Yeah. Motion is an issue for me with digital films as well. And this is not to say that there aren't great looking films that are shot on digital. There certainly are. But there's always a uh, nearly a, a cheapness to them, I would say. Yeah, it's slightly cheapened the film. There's a couple of bits where I feel like, yeah, the camera's not captured that right. Yeah. I've not seen the black and white version of the film. I'm not sure whether that's like any different to the colour version. I read online that a few people have said that it's the better film, but it wasn't a film to me that was screaming out to be in black and white. But it's strange, isn't it, that we're getting all these films recently, these very much strong director-driven films like... Mad Max Fury Road, unlike this, and even the likes of The Mist, which is an entirely different type of film, they're pushing this idea that they should be black and white rather than in colour. And they regard them as well as the superior versions. I think George Miller certainly regards Mad Max Fury Road in black and white as his superior version of that film. I think it's strange that suddenly directors are starting to explore the idea of limited colour, if any colour at all, in their films, and more about the idea of playing with blacks and whites. Well, I've always been a proponent of black and white for horror films. The Mist certainly works so much better in black and white. Yeah. I can agree with that, even the CGI. I mean, there are a couple of films, like we were talking the other week about Argento films, that do use colour really well. Yeah. With horror, you kind of want to go from one extreme to the other. Like, if you're using colour, you use fucking colour. Yeah. In black and white, it lends to the atmospheric so much better than a standard colour treatment would do. I think when films fall in the middle, that's when they suffer. I think with horror especially, you need to go one end or the other. Yeah, like make a statement. Or go grainy or something, you know, like Mm. like say like uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Oh, yeah. Is unnerving because of its graininess Yeah, and its kind of lo-fi-ness. Well, it makes it feel more like a documentary. It's shot in the way that a documentary would. Whereas a lot of horror films, they just kind of fall in the middle visually. They're not as exciting as they should be. For example, you've just mentioned Texas Chainsaw Massacre. You only have to compare the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre to the remake to see exactly what we're talking about. In 3D! <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. Because the, the first Texas Chainsaw Massacre is a film with a very, very intense visual style. It's got its documentary feel to it that really hadn't been seen in horror before as well. And then you look at them now, and especially you look at the Platinum Dunes, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, where it's the cinematography is what you would describe as lovely. <laughs> lovely stuff but it has nothing horrific about it whatsoever it's like they've gone for something that is pretty almost Mm. in a way and it doesn't make enough of a statement as well it's too busy just looking for the grand shots there's no purpose to it but yeah going back to these kind of black and white versions i'm not averse to them but at the same time they do feel a little bit like a an afterthought because with films 
shot in black and white. I mean, the best ones are always the ones where they've shot with that medium in mind. And yeah. in any film is like that when, it, you know, a film has been shot with a medium in mind. So it goes the same with, um, you know, 3D post-converted films. Of course. they've shot it with 2D in mind and then it's been post-converted to 3D oh, yeah. and it looks bloody awful. Where I say a film that's been shot with 3D in mind will always look better. Yeah. Especially if it's been shot with 3D cameras, it will always look better because the film has been made for that medium like specifically. So it's going to embrace all that comes with that. Whereas, say, making of colour film black and white is not quite the same as shooting it in black and white. Yeah. I get the sentiment, though. Me too. And I, I think it has to be a certain type of film as well to be in black and white. I know that with Mad Max Fury Road, I love that film. I've not watched it in black and white. I don't really have a desire to see it in black and white. But I understand why George Miller wanted there to be a black and white version out there, considering that of his Mad Max films, that's the one that draws from silent era cinema the most. Like, that's where he's playing on the likes. I think I've mentioned it before on the podcast, like Buster Keaton. Like The General, for example. It feels like he's playing within that sandbox. So I can see why he, after drawing that inspiration, would want to have a black and white version out there. But having said that, I still have no desire really to see it that way because I think the colours are there and work really well for that film. In a way, maybe it should have gone one step further and done a silent black and white version. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) With cue cards. (laughs) If we're going that far into the sort of silent world, which it does, I reckon you could do a version of it with cue cards and maybe keep the score, but then have it without... Yeah, it would have been interesting to see it like that. Andy, I think you've just found your next fan edit (laughs) of a film. Oh God. <laughs> silent version of Mad Max Fury Road yeah but coming back to Logan as well we were just uh, really discussing that final act and really for yeah. you in particular it's the character of X-24 that you feel like this film should have abandoned completely I think it's a little bit that a little bit in the way that the thing's been executed I liked that Logan just cuts off Richard E. Grant monologuing I think that was yeah. the best part of that but I think from the moment you get to the kids when it becomes beyond Thunderdome which is actually ironically the bit I watched first because I just for some reason caught the end of the film on TV a couple of months ago and that was the bit that it started with. Yeah. And I watched it basically until the end because I kind of knew what happened anyway. I would say as well, it doesn't take a, a rocket scientist to figure out <laughs> the, no. what's going to happen in this film, no. what what it's building towards. Its themes are very prevalent from the beginning as well. And it, considering that it's a film about loss and it's a film about the death of a parent, but the burden of caring for the burden of love for your parents, that's what it seems to be about as well. Yeah. Especially when you look at it from both Logan's point of view in terms of caring for Professor X and then you look at it from Laura's point of view in terms of caring for Logan. It seems mm. to be about there being a burden to love, a price to pay for parental love, which I really like about this film. But you don't have to be a rocket scientist to know where it's heading. Yeah. I think the first thing that I picked up on was given the effectiveness of the video footage in the exposition sequences prior yeah and how heartbreaking that was it was kind of almost not disappointing but slightly kind of puzzling to see most of the kids alive when you find them i think it would have been maybe a little bit more appropriate to have actually not all of them appear yeah it would have been better and more ominous for the villains that if they say some of them hadn't made it like they'd had their fights along the way yeah it felt a little bit easy for them to all be miraculously there at that meeting point you know i've never really thought about that but that's something really 
that I'd, I'd never thought about, but certainly now, yeah, there could have been more in terms of saying that these people have had some rough road that they've travelled. Yeah. I know that they do allude in the dialogue to the idea that they are waiting for others that never appear, mm. but there's no sense of a journey that they've had as well. Like, there's no, no real injuries or anything like that. I think it would have been more ominous if they got there and, you know, you knew there were about 15 of them, but there were only, only actually three there. Yeah. Those were the only three that had managed to get there. I think that would have fit in more with the theme that they were going with. Yeah. And I think, in a way, it would have helped as well because I feel like we didn't spend enough time with these characters. So when you get to that third act, it's a little bit muddled. Mm. It's kind of doing too much for you to care about those kid characters enough. It's very much beyond Thunderdome to me. Yeah. I I remember thinking that in the cinema as well, that... (laughs) They even have a cutting of the hair scene. Yeah. I was thinking about that before, like especially when they winch him up yeah. as well. It did feel very Mad Maxi Thunderdome. Yeah, I just think in terms of the way that that last act, which feels very short for a last act as well, considering all the build-up. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's just some of the staging of it I didn't particularly like. I think it, that's where it fell down a little bit cinematically for me. I felt some of it was a little bit too straightforward looking. Mm-hmm. And again, yeah, I like the kids using the powers, but it may have been more effective if there'd been less kids there was just something about that third act that wasn't satisfying. Just didn't quite gel with you. No, it didn't quite gel. I think I, maybe it's James Mangold and endings because the same thing happens with with the Wolverine, but on a you know on a much more disastrous scale. <laughs> yeah. To to this, even like the way say um, Boyd Holbrook's character is killed, it didn't feel satisfying enough because there weren't enough connections between those kids and that character other than the flashbacks. Yeah. I just felt there was a little bit of connective tissue that was missing. Yeah. Or something that he could have even done in the scene to say one of the other kids, like maybe one of the other kids should have died in that Mm -hmm. sequence to make that element ring more true because it did feel a little bit unsatisfying. Yeah. Although I liked the effect of what they did. It was a bit of a strange one. It doesn't quite... No, it's 95% of the way there, but doesn't quite nail it on the head. I don't have the issues that you have with the final act for reasons that I'll explain very shortly, but... I agree with you wholeheartedly that I think that the demise of Boyd Holbrook in particular is very anticlimactic. Mm. There's a book I read about psychology for screenwriters. It's, I mean, you don't have to have read this book to understand this, but it poses the idea as well that a villain that has been prominent throughout the film should have a death that is appropriate to his amount of villainness. And I don't feel that he gets the appropriate death. It is a cool death, but it's kind Mm. of half-hearted because there's something more interesting, for me, because there's something more interesting going on elsewhere. He is essentially killed by characters that he's had no connection with from an audience perspective from the rest of the film. No. And and I get that they need to give these kids, because these kids are, from what we've seen, kids that have endured harshness at his hands, but it's... Because from an audience point of view, we've only seen it within the very short exposition scene that came in the first act. Yeah. Or the the beginning of the second act, that there's actually been a lot of time between them that it doesn't feel like he gets an appropriate send-off, really. Yeah, I think, again, with villain deaths, sometimes their deaths need to be connected to their personalities. Yeah. For example, like the moment where he gets his robot hand blown off is ultimately more satisfying than his actual death. He's got, like, a real, like, kind of weird, twisted pride in this robot hand that he's got. Like mm-hmm. he's really proud of this hand. You can tell that he's he loves this robot hand. It would have been nice if actually his robot hand would have contributed to his death in some way. Yeah. Like it actually been sort of locked to actually like kill him, like throttle himself or do something like really horrible with his hand. Yeah. Like that would have been more no, satisfying get, and appropriate yeah. because he was so like into his hand. No, I agree with like you. I didn't feel like 
his death was connected to his personality yeah. somewhat as, as a bit of a screenwriting boo-boo. I've always thought there's something anticlimactic about it and I think that's it, that it's lacking that kind of connection. I mean, and also just in the same way with the Richard E. Grant character who's been built up to be Mr. Bad Guy, posh English villain and he's now going to start monologuing. Nope, bang. That was a very appropriate whereas I feel with the Boyd Holbrook one, they didn't quite nail that. I absolutely agree there. The Richard E. Grant one certainly is the stronger death of the two. Mm. Essentially, he's been set up throughout the entire film as being the monologuer as well. He's going to have his big moment. And just as it gets to it, just as we are expecting his big speech, that's fuck off, you're dead. Yeah, I'm going to lay everything out. Nope. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, that is very satisfying. I laugh. It's like we've gone past that now. (laughs) It's like we've gone past that. It's too late for that now. Yeah. Everything's fucked. It doesn't matter anyway. (laughs) But speaking as well specifically about the ending, I will say that regardless of like any issue I have with that, I do still think that that final act works as a whole. I found it refreshing at the time that I saw it because it came out at a time when endings for these type of films were so overblown and all about the world saving that to have a film that actually stripped it back to a skirmish between I'd say 30 people at max or maybe even less and it's more just a fist fight in the woods I very much enjoyed that it went down that road and that it never lost sight of the fact that this was a personal and focused story about these characters that it was character-led that it's about where these characters are going to end up because essentially this is it's a film about Logan looking for a place to die one of the things that I think it does very well with that ending is the very final part with Daphne Keane and I actually started crying (laughs) she saves him but not from death like death is essentially the ultimate release for him what in many ways he's been craving but after all of this killing, after all of what he's lived his life doing, essentially, that for this very brief moment, he gets to experience what it is to be loved as a father as well. Yeah. And then you have this great final line for him, which is, oh, this is what it feels like. And it can be so many different things. Like, is it the fact that he's experiencing death and he's never experienced it before? He's doled it out to so many people, but he's, he's always been a spectator, never a participant in death. Or is it the fact that he's never been loved this way before? Like, the love for a father is something that he's given Professor X but never taken himself as well. And is, is that what he's referring to? And I thought that is a perfect line. And then to end it as well with the shot of the cross turning into an X. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think any issue that I had with the likes of Boyd Holbrook's character, by that, I was like, I had goosebumps. And I was like, that mm-hmm. final shot of the grave with the X... That should have been the end of this series. That should have been a signifier that oh, this yeah, this totally. is it, this is it now. Yeah. We are done, and it's it would have been so satisfying to end with that. But no, yeah. we got Dark Phoenix. No, and I was gonna say like with that third act as well. Again, I feel like I've been overly critical on it, but I think mainly for the type of film that it is, rather than being yeah. a superhero film. But yeah, just the contrast between this and Apocalypse in third act. Well, I mean, just in general anyway, but in that third act, yeah. is like night and day. Because that third accent apocalypse is fucking abysmal. <laughs> it's so like stock blue light in the sky. Yeah, cities being destroyed with no consequences. Bullshit. <laughs> it's just an awful example of that type of filmmaking. But it reminds me of. Do you remember when Adam Sandler made Funny People? Yeah, yeah. And it was this film that was about Adam Sandler films and being the Adam Sandler comedy actor and how lacking in reward that was for him then the next film that he did was grown-ups 
that's that's what this feels like it feels like you've just yeah. gone from a film where finally we're starting to get towards the type of film we want to see is this not because for me it's not that i'm bored of superhero films i have superhero fatigue it's that i'm bored of superhero films being a certain type of superhero film take these characters make horror movies make westerns make action movies make romances if you want to do whole different genres of movies and and do it well with visions logan feels like the films that are getting towards that idea and then x-men apocalypse is as much of a step forward that logan is it's a leap back it feels like the general brass at fox or the, at least the people in charge of the X-Men film series, i.e. Simon Kinberg, kind of viewed this film as its own little annex and didn't feed off it. Yeah. Especially for Dark Phoenix. It's like they were on their own trajectory and they weren't going to change that for anybody. No. Even if the other film was way better received than their films, it, it didn't really make much sense to me. Yeah. Which is why this film does feel so much like a, a spin-off, self-contained movie. Mm-hmm. Although there was one thing, interesting thing I read this morning about that end scene that you were talking about that is um, foreshadowed in the Wolverine because apparently one of the I think it's one of the characters I think it might even be the old Japanese guy characters who he said that uh, Logan would die with his chest ripped open and his heart in his hands oh I get it yeah in the way that they did it they actually did do that but the interpretation was different the fact that yeah his chest is ripped open at the end but his his literal heart his lord is holding his hand yeah that, that's how they did that so that's quite a nice thing that they did i didn't know that that's lovely that that was on the um imdb trivia page oh fuck <laughs> <laughs> you can see where i didn't look for this episode but well yeah. i just thought i'd do a little bit of research this morning just to see what was going on because yeah i didn't know too much about the making of this film but um that was one of the things and i was like oh yeah i remember that from the wolverine yeah i think that's the only thing that it really takes from that film yeah because the wolverine for all it does right it still feels like a tom rothman fox film yeah for me it's it's still like you've got to hit these particular beats and there's a lot of them that you need to hit i mean that's why i feel like logan is in some respects a rewrite of the wolverine because yeah it's like good effort but try harder kind of thing Mm -hmm. because the basic structure is pretty much the same it's still a road trip movie chase yeah it is yeah but obviously what it does is completely different but yeah it does feel like they kind of went "Mm, didn't quite get that let's do it again let's try again and do it better i think i think you're 100 right there it does feel that way especially the fact that like why would james mungo come back to this yeah there must have been that in the back of his mind going yeah i don't think i quite did that as well as i wanted to i didn't want to go back and do it again i don't think they would have come back to this film unless they could have done what they wanted specifically no no. i mean i do agree there's probably a um a couple of things in this film that are still studio mandated you have to include these beats in order to make the film but i feel like Whereas with this film, it's like probably one or two beats in which, you know, make whatever you want, but make sure you just hit these marks here. Whereas with <laughs> with Wolverine, it's like, you can make whatever film you want as long as you hit these 90 story beats that we are providing <laughs> you with. Yeah. It's like, you work however you want within this framework. Logan certainly does feel like a film that's more vision-led than that one oh, totally. previously. Yeah, completely. But yeah, speaking just very briefly as well, because I, I did just want to put my opinion across on the uh, the character of X-24. I always yeah, get the X's mixed yeah. up. I think this is the evil Wolverine, the berserker Wolverine, or however you want to call him. Yeah, I mean, I do feel like there's a saber-toothness to him, but I appreciated how stripped back he was that they could have gone down the road of him being some horribly disfigured version of wolverine like 
almost in the same way at the end of the Incredible Hulk movie we did, whatever that name of the villain is in that. But it's like, or the Abomination. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, like, yeah. oh look, it's the, it's Hulk, but he looks really, really weird and, and awful and well, shit. I really. <laughs> I was really glad that this was essentially a lo-fi version of that, where I don't know if they did change the look of the character whatsoever, if there's been any work done, but it essentially just looks like Hugh Jackman, but younger. I liked that, but also I liked that because this film had always, as I mentioned previously, was about the consequences of violence and about Logan confronting the consequences of the violence that he had dealt out throughout his life as well, that we actually had a physical manifestation of that for him to confront essentially is the thing that ends him he's saved in his final moments by laura but him confronting his own violent past is something that he will never be able to escape is the the statement that this film makes in its denouement of that character is that if you live a violent life you will live a violent death as well and it's leaning back on that shane message as well about having the gun you know there's no love or life for for the killing or something like that it's the it's the quote that they Mm. they lean on and I like that that final message that he imparts really for Laura is don't be the gun or the knife, the stabby hand. Mm. <laughs> I like that we have a physical manifestation of that. I get that it's the more hokier element in this film because it's essentially a superhero going up against another superhero. But I felt like it was done in a way that lent itself more towards like Terminator 2 in that the action whenever they fought each other felt more grounded. There was no like scaling of buildings or chases on a bullet train or anything like that. It came to two people essentially stabbing each other. I just wish there had been a more eloquent way they could have done it because I do agree with all of what you just said, but I just feel like it's still in a way a little bit hokey. And especially for what they were going for, they could have come up with something a little bit more complex. Yeah, That's why I feel like, again, this film is a little bit transitional yeah i feel like if they made another film like this again and were given even more freedom mm-hmm. they could have done something even more compelling because yeah i do feel like there's a couple of little bits and bobs like that where i feel like uh, it's kind of holding it back a little bit mm-hmm. it still feels of that kind of world yeah which i didn't think they needed to do because it, it completely exists in its own time and place yeah i think even when i watched it just the last 20 minutes like on the tv when i saw that that was one of the elements of the film i was like oh they've done that mm-hmm. i don't know i think it's just because i've seen that kind of thing a few too many times yeah i mean and we... i do like that they handle it much better than a lot of other films but at the same time i've still seen that loads of times i mean i agree but i think if there's a character really that if you do it with any character i think logan is one that really could do with confronting his violence in that way and it is a comic book movie i think now as well because i think we've talked about logan for quite some time i'll I'll just provide some stats and facts as well about the film so just moving on to the critical reception for the film it has a rotten tomato score of 93 percent with an average score of 7.93 so like an 8 out of 10 and the consensus is hugh jackman makes the most of his final outing as wolverine with a gritty nuanced performance in a violent but surprisingly thoughtful superhero action film that defies genre conventions. And it has an audience score on Rotten Tomatoes as well of 90%, and the IMDb score is 8.1, so it's quite high across the board. Mm-hmm. I'd say that the lowest point being really the average Rotten Tomatoes score, even though it has 90 This is the very thing that you were speaking of the other day on a previous episode, was yeah. that it has a Rotten Tomatoes score of 93%, that doesn't mean that it's going to have a 
average score that reflects 9.3 out of 10. No. It's 7.93, so it's more like an 8 out of 10. And personally, I would say maybe an 8 out of 10 is appropriate. I still think quite a few films are rated far too high. Yeah. You have to think about cinema across the board. I think an 8 out of 10 is very good for this film. Yeah, I mean... And I think 8 out of 10 should be seen as being really good as well, rather than being, oh, it's not quite 10 out of 10, is it? <laughs> Because yeah, a 10 I out of 10 agree. should be fucking amazing, like the best thing you've ever seen. Yeah. And I think far too many films get a 10 out of 10. Far no, I too think many. We, I think we live a very uh, binary way now in terms of our reactions to films, which you can only have yeah, really good yeah. or bad films. You can only have the best films or the worst films, and there's no space for the in-between. Yeah. And although I can certainly see Logan as one of the best superhero films, I actually agree with you. I think my score, if I was to give it out of 10, would be somewhere between 8 and 9 but not yeah. quite 9 and 10. Yeah. Because I love this film, and I think it is thoughtful, and it does a lot right. But there are just those little moments, like Boyd Holbrook's character, I forgot his name, someone like Pierce, is a proponent Pierce, yeah. throughout the entire film. That He does feel very background and secondary, though. There's no... I feel like if they had given that side of that particular character more dimensions, then that film mm-hmm. would have stepped up. And I also agree that we don't get time, really, to get to know the other children. But yeah, I agree. I, I love this film, but I still think it's somewhere between an 8 and a 9 out of 10. 8.5, let's say. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's the thing. I, we were talking about the binary world. Like, in a binary world, I would hate this film. It's fucking awful. And you'd be like, oh, no, it's the best thing ever. You know, exactly. Yeah, exactly. I can't falter. And that seems to be the way a lot of film criticism, especially on social media these days, is portrayed, whereas, like, maybe I'm not quite as enamored of the film as you are, but I still think it's good. I think yeah. it's a good film. But you maybe like it slightly more than I do. But we're having a constructive conversation about the merits and faults of the film and that's how it should be exactly i think it's because of the social media effect as well everybody has their soapbox and the people that are heard the most are the ones that have the strongest opinion so Mm -hmm. it's almost like encouraged to have a strong opinion one way or the other it's not good enough to say that a film is a five or six out of ten and it'd be Mm. just okay also, just in terms of the box office for Logan, it had a budget of $97 million, and the North American box office came in at $226 million, and the worldwide box office was $619 million. And that puts it at the <laughs> highest for any of the Wolverine films, despite yeah. the R rating as well. Yeah. Wolverine Origins, the uh, X-Men Origins Wolverine, had $373 million overall worldwide, and the Wolverine worldwide was $414 million. So it's quite a considerable amount more, $200 million more, in fact, than the film before it. And I think it speaks volumes when you compare it to the uh, the other X-Men films that are out of that time. Yeah. Apocalypse and Dark Phoenix, because they made significantly less, especially considering their budgets as well. Yeah. I mean, I know Apocalypse, did that do about 500? I think it did, yeah. I think it was uh, around about 500. But I think its budget was twice the amount of Logan's, at least. And then Phoenix comes out, Dark Phoenix, and that had around about the same budget as Apocalypse. And I think that only mm. made something like 250 million, if that. Yeah. Which is, yeah. Uh, it made a, a quite significant loss. But at the time, the studio had already been sold off to Disney. So essentially any money that had been spent on the film had already been written off. So yeah, they essentially just let it die. And to be honest, that was the right thing to do with that film. Comparatively, uh, Logan's numbers have much more in common with Deadpool's numbers. Yeah, it does. And I think Deadpool did slightly better, but still around that ballpark. It did, yeah. Because Deadpool's budget, as I've mentioned, 58 million and it made 800 million worldwide. Mm. But actually, just my final thoughts on this as well. And they're not actually going to be my final thoughts on Logan because I think I've spoke about that enough and about what I really respond to with that film. Yeah, yeah. But my final thoughts really are about Fox Studios in general or 20th Century Studios now. And when the big sale came, 
I felt like we were having something of a renaissance, not in terms of maybe the quality of the films, but in terms of the films that were being chosen to be made under the Fox banner were far more interesting than what any other studio were doing with these types of budgets. And I just want to go through some of the films that were being released at that time. We had Logan, obviously, but we also had Deadpool, Alien Covenant, A Cure for Wellness, which is a very, very strange movie made for a huge budget by Gore Verbinski that really delves into some weird body horror stuff as well, but also has a hammer horror feel to it. And you also have films like The Revenant and War for the Planet of the Apes. And it feels to me that even if these films didn't all quite succeed, they were doing something interesting. They were exploring different avenues in series that something was already expected of them. And they were doing something different and they were taking risks. And unfortunately, since the sale of Fox to Disney, there's been no inclination that that is something that they're still willing to explore. I mean, there seems to be even some trepidation just in making a Deadpool movie. And that is a guaranteed success. So my final thoughts really are more just a lament on what we've lost here because i think the absorbing of fox into disney is going to have a massive negative impact on the film industry but as a swan song i think logan is pretty strong i viewed the fox disney takeover to be uh something uh, of great sadness because the problem with disney and this is maybe something that's going to have to change over time if they are I would say even if they're going to survive, because I don't think they can keep this up forever. No. They have a brand problem Mm -hmm. because they are known as the family-friendly brand. And they had this problem in the 80s when they tried to do more adult films and they failed spectacularly. But because they are so associated with family-friendly, going up to sort of early teens films. Yeah. And they have basically nothing to do with adult films. Because even the adult films that they've made, because I know they had like Miramax back in the 90s. Mm -hmm. They kind of felt a bit more in control with that kind of stuff than they actually are now. Yeah. Because, you know, at the end of the day, Pulp Fiction was a Disney movie. It was, yeah. So was Con Air. Yeah. In a way, it's even more so because their brand, especially since the Disney Plus thing, their brand is so focused in those areas of Disney, Pixar, Marvel, Lucasfilm. Yeah. Which are all family-friendly things. The acquisition of Fox doesn't make a whole lot of sense outside of their rights to these Marvel characters. Yeah. But everything else doesn't make any sense. To the point that people are theorizing that they're actually going to sell off a lot of the properties because they have nothing that they can do with them because Mm. there are rumors out there that series like the Alien series are going to be more explored on Hulu as a TV series. But, like, you expect me to not just have Disney+, Plus, but an entirely different subscription to another service that you offer just for a different type of film. That seems yeah. incredibly backwards to me, and, and it's going to fail. It's set up primed to fail. Yeah, uh, this is the, the big contention I have with this whole Disney Plus Hulu thing, because I know that there were some things that were being set up to go on Disney+, Plus that, which have now been moved to Hulu because they've been deemed too adult yeah and also properties that have been hampered i know even just something stupid like they wanted to an update of lizzie mcguire as she would be now Mm -hmm. and they 
didn't want that because they just wanted how it was originally. But obviously, Lizzie McGuire's got a lot older. So they've got this weird dichotomy now where it's like the brand is so established, but at the same time, it's not established because they don't know what to fucking do with all these things. And everything has to fit into this narrow field in order for it to be accepted into Disney+. And everything else just gets chucked into Hulu. It's weird. So that is the death of cinema that we've uh, (laughs) discussed today. (laughs) Okay, so I think that's it for this week's episode of Popcorn Digest. It's a quite long episode at that as well. Um, I do have have one fun fact. Oh, one fun fact. Let's bring it back. (laughs) So um, James Mangold, his first credit was as a co-writer for the movie Oliver and Company. The Disney film Oliver and Company. Yes, yes. It's the circle of life. Yeah. (laughs) There we go. That's my fun fact for today. Okay, so next week, I'm sure you'll be bringing plenty of fun facts for next week's episode, since Mm -hmm. it is your choice. And we will be reviewing... What are we reviewing again, Andy? Toys. Toys. Oh, my gosh. So, essentially, for me bringing you cats, you are now punishing me by bringing me toys. (laughs) (laughs) That's okay. So, join us next week when Andy and I will be playing with our toys. But until then, it's bye from myself. I'm sorry, I've forgotten what I was doing. Oh, look. I need to, oh, I need to pee. Sorry. This feels very much like it's going to fit right into toys. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Thank you for listening. <laughs>